Welcome to the Agency Growth Machine Podcast, where it's all about transforming potential into profit. And now your host, Randy Schwantz. Hey, this is Randy Schwantz, and welcome to the Agency Growth Machine Podcast, where we talk about how to transform potential into profit. So um, I don't know about you, but uh, I see people every once in a while that I think about, man, that guy's a superman. I bet he's never struggled with anything in his life. Or same thing with certain women. I mean, just like they're amazing. And it's easy to think that they've got it perfect. And it's not that we don't have it perfect, but that they got it perfect. They never struggled. Things are easy for them. But I found out that's not the case. And certainly that is not or wasn't the case for me. Um, so just give you a little backstory. Uh I was born in Lubbock, Texas, back in the old days. I grew up in the big city of Lubbock and then went to the first grade. And then we moved out into the country. It started the second grade and brand new school. And all my friends were farmers and all that sort of stuff. So, you know, for the rest of uh, elementary school and junior high and high school, uh, went to New Deal. That was the name of it, New Deal. And uh, I was a basketball player. And you're thinking a little tiny itsy-bitty class A school, which means that graduating class, you know, I think we, I think we have 46 people, something like that. You know, most of the schools we played were, you know, their, their, senior, their, their senior class, certainly less than 75 people. You know, making the basketball team can't be that hard, if you understand what I'm saying. Being a superstar in a class A school should be easy, but I never was. I worked hard, but I never was. I was just okay, and uh, it didn't. And, and I worked hard. I mean, I, I really, I, I tried. I, I thought someday I'd be like an NBA guy, right? <laughs> I, I at least thought I'd play college. I thought that people would recognize it, but they didn't, and I didn't. And that's kind of my point. I mean, uh, some of you guys out there were always studs. You were either intellectual studs and made made you know straight A's, or you were or you were athletic studs and and, you know, was starting quarterback or starting point guard or whatever, or you were, or, if, or you were cheerleading studettes or the same thing with, with, uh, academics or sports or female or great singer or artist or whatever. And some of you are that way, but most of us by definition aren't we are somewhat average in many ways, you know, intellectually average, uh, athletically average. I mean, a lot of stuff. And so the only way we're going to get anywhere is to work hard. But if you're not careful, you'll let that average eat you up in a way. And frankly, I think it did me. You know, I, I went to college um, for three days. <laughs> I went Tuesday, Thursday, and Tuesday. Um, I used to say I went for a week and a half because it encompassed it a week and a half, but it was really three days, Tuesday, Thursday, Tuesday. And that was only after uh, I had a at a Porsche 914, after I got out of high school, I was uh, working in construction as a laborer and um, bought that car and loved it and thought that it would be the biggest chick magnet on the on the planet. Didn't turn out that way totally. And um, anyway, driving home from work one day about July 3rd of one year, that thing caught on fire and melted before my eyes. And the fire department came, put it out. The insurance company wrote me a check for its full value. And I'm thinking, sign from God, time to go to school. And so that's when I enrolled in school. And um, I told the counselor 
by that time, I already knew that I was interested in sales and selling. My dad was a sales guy. And I, I told the counselor, man, I'd like to understand sales psychology. And they go, nope can't do that. That's a, that's a junior class. You're a freshman. So they put me in psych 101 along with algebra. Now in high school, my final grade on algebra was 114, man. I loved it. But two years later, I didn't tell you, I skipped two years before I went off to college. Two years later, man, I couldn't keep up and I wasn't motivated to keep up either. So that's why Tuesday, Thursday, Tuesday, and then I quit. So I keep working. Um, I worked on the railroad. I sold Kirby vacuum cleaners. Um, and frankly, I, I couldn't find a good job. I mean, and that's what happens when you're, you know, you're a construction laborer. You didn't go to college. You didn't have any criteria or credentials. Then you get crappy sales jobs or crappy, you know, manual labor jobs. And when I worked on the railroad, I slept in a boxcar, me and about 16 other Hispanic dudes that were about 40 years older than I was and one other Caucasian kid like me and one African-American sleeping in boxcars, living out on the railroad, straightening and raising track. I mean, it was horrible. Uh, so uh, anyway, that that was my deal. And um, finally, uh, this one company that I interviewed for, uh, they didn't hire me. Six months later, they came back to me and they, they hired a college grad. They came back to me and said, we would like to give you a shot. So I went to work for them. And I had an unbelievable mentor. His name was Jerry Stigler. And uh, it was a kind of a, a metal building services and air conditioning services type of, you know, steel warehouse distribution center. And so every time I saw something uh, that I didn't know what it was, I'd go to Jerry and Jerry'd walk me out to the warehouse, show me what it was, show me how it worked, uh, show me show me where it was in the catalog, show me how to price, show me everything. And then uh, our, our branch manager left Lubbock and went to Dallas. And then he called me one day and said, hey, would you like to come to Dallas? And I said, yeah, I'd love to. So I went out and met with him there and ended up getting a job and working in his office in Dallas. And it was interesting that because I worked with Jerry, uh, having only been in the company, say, a little over two years, I knew more than people that were working in the office have been there for 15, 18, and 20 years because I had a great mentor. It was a very big deal. Well, things went on. Things changed at that company. Uh, and then I ended up with a couple of sales jobs. Nothing worked out very well. Finally got into one where I'm working for a steel Manufacturer, where we did the stairways, backing rails, and carports on big apartment complexes. And frankly, I loved it. It was it was a lot of fun. But that all kind of leads up to that's kind of my little history. You know, uh, one day I'm reading Success Magazine as I'm sitting in my condo and I'm flipping through the pages. And on the right hand side of the page, the bottom half was a big black and white granny picture, and the caption on top of it says Tony Robbins helps people turn fear into power. And I'm thinking, hmm, that's interesting. And then I read the caption below. Tony Robbins has taken over 30,000 people on this experience he calls a firewalk, turning fear into power. And then it went on to talk a little bit about his firewalk experience. And I remember saying to myself that day, you know, that would be good for me. Because there's, there's things down inside of me that I, I think I could do more, be more, make more. But for whatever reason, I'm not, and I can't put my finger on it. I don't know what it is. Is it fear? Uh, I, I don't know. So 
I was intrigued by what he had to offer. And um, it's interesting that about six weeks after seeing that article and saying, boy, that'd be cool. I'd love to go if he ever came to town. Then, uh, interestingly enough, he decided to come to Dallas. And there's a friend of mine named Mark Pantak that uh, had saw that article or something about Tony and said, hey, guess what, Schwantz, you know, Robin's coming to town. You want to go? And and then all of a sudden, I was like, uh, I, I don't know. Go walk on fire? I mean, that sounds like you could get hurt, get burned. I, I, I don't, I, you know, it was a good idea when I read it. I don't think so now. But fortunately, he was persuasive enough and knew my motivation. So he kind of got me over the hump and I registered for Tony Robbins workshop. Now, why do I tell you that part right off the bat? Is that a lot of us know deep down inside we got more in us. And a lot of us want to be that more. Uh, but so many times, I mean, we're, we're influenced by our family, our friends, or some external deal that's going to cause us to either go or not go. Thank goodness, man. Mark Pantak was there because if not, I know I wouldn't have. I know I wouldn't have registered. I wouldn't have done it. So uh, we registered. Uh, and now it's time. So it's at a Holiday Inn in Plano, Texas. And that's back before Tony Robbins was anywhere close to famous. And we had about 150 people in the room, which is a great number. And uh, the the deal started at about 6 o'clock on a Friday evening. And uh, Tony gets up on stage and tells a few great stories. And then he gets up there and does a little karate or something like that and breaks some boards. And they tell some more stories. And we all know what we're there for. We're there to walk on fire. So uh, uh, we took a break, and he sent us outside, and all this firewood was was kind of piled up in stacks, if you will. And then we come back inside after the break, and we do some more work and uh, go back outside. And this time, about an hour, hour and a half later, and then we light the fire, and it starts to burn. That was part of the ceremonial. Come back inside, do some more work. And as we're doing our work and exercises and things like that, one of the things we do is we write down on a piece of paper our biggest fear. And they'll go outside. And now that, that fire that we'd lit last time we were out had burned down to just a heap of red coals. And, you know, uh, a heap of red coals puts a lot of heat. And, and we were instructed to take that fear that we written on a piece of paper and throw it into the fire. And so it's part of the metaphor of throwing your fear away and watching it be consumed. We go back inside and do some more work. And by now it's about midnight 30. And he says, he looks around in the room. And he says, okay, everybody, we're about to go outside and we're going to walk on fire. And he's looking around the room and he goes, everybody except, and he points at this one person, you and you, everybody else outside. And so you're just thinking, thank God he didn't call me out. And I was one of the people he thought couldn't make it. So then we go outside and uh, it's midnight 30 and it's dark and there's, there's two runways. So there's a big old two piles of, of, uh, you know, fire burning, you know, hot, red hot coals. And then two paths that were about, I'm going to say 10 feet long, about 20 inches wide of hot coals to put down. And everybody now is lining up behind those two, those two deals of hot coals. 
and these drum beats are beating in the background, boom, 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 you know, kind of got this whole hypnotic sound going on. And then he comes out and he's got his little microphone in his mouth and speaker, you know, okay, everybody get ready. You know, and we'd already been trained that when you get ready to walk on fire, you just go, you know, you, you, you get in the state and then you go, cool, moss, cool, moss, cool, moss. All right, get ready, get ready, get ready. Okay, now you go. So first guys go and the next guys go and, you know, and then, then and you know, you're, you're, you're moving up in line and you're thinking, oh my God, and you're, you're chanting this cool moss and you hear this boom, 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 thing in the background is cool moss and you're in the state and then all of a sudden now you're there and then they put down some fresh calls and just go, go. And it's like, walk, step, 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 step off on the other side. They spray your feet down then you celebrate like crazy. And that was the fire walk. It was cool. So we did that, celebrated. I got home about 2.30 that night. Um, got up the next day, you know, and, the, and we did the rest of the workshop. It's all day Saturday, all day Sunday. You're on a high. It's, it's amazing. But then here's what happened to me. Um, my logical mind, I know, I know you can't walk on hot coals without getting burned. My logical mind knows that. So then, even though I did it, even though I experienced it, even though all those good things happened, I went into this major doubt in about two weeks, trying to figure it out. Even to the point of, I wasn't depressed, you know, like clinically depressed, but I was depressed, kind of like, God, I didn't, I mean, that didn't even make sense. I mean, how could you do that? And I was talking myself out of it. And then one day, probably, you know, several months after I said, this is stupid. I did it. I got pictures of me doing it. That's me. Get over it. I did it. Right. And then as that's happening, then I start thinking, crap, I did it. I did it. Own it. Own what I did. And then I started thinking about, all right, good. So I did. I walked on fire. Now, what was interesting, and here's, here was the dialogue going through my head, um, uh, before I ever did it, I said to myself, if 30,000 people can do it, why can't I? That's what enabled me to sign up. Then I did it, and I finally owned that I did it. And then I sat there and started saying to myself, okay, what are all the other things I tell myself I can't? But if somebody else can do it, then why can't I? And that, frankly, became my mantra. If somebody else can do it, then why can't I? To do it, whatever it is, I probably need a mentor, some coaching, some training, but why do I put limitations on myself the way I was? And, you know, a lot of my limitations were put on the, myself because, you know, I'm redneck, farm boy, blue collar, grew up. You know, my dad, I think, I think the most money my dad ever made was maybe twenty three, twenty four thousand $24,000 a year. We always had everything we needed, but we didn't have much else. Um, you know, my dad was a fighter pilot, flew a P-47 Thunderbolt. I mean, that's he's a fighter pilot, for crying out loud. But after he got out of the, the Army Air Force, he didn't fly anymore. And uh, interestingly enough, he didn't take any risks. He certainly didn't take business risks, and he didn't take professional risks. And, and, and then all my friends were farmers. And in a sense, they took massive risks, but the government there was always there to bail them out, it seemed like. And that's the environment I grew up in. No entrepreneurial leadership, none of that stuff. So then I had this kind of cast iron skillet I wore as a hat going, yeah, all that good stuff is reserved for somebody else. But then after the fire walk, new mantra. Instead of all that good stuff is reserved for somebody else, 
the new mantra was, if they can do it, why can't I? So then when the opportunity came a couple of years later, you know, I started this business, you know, what is, what is now the wedge group. And, you know, a couple of years into it, uh, I wrote a book called the wedge. Now here's something that's interesting and, and hopefully you'll, you'll, you'll get the lack of humor in it. Um, I remember, uh, uh, I met a guy named Michael Graham, who's, who's a great dude. Man, he, he used to be a stand-up comedian, talk show, radio host. He's a writer. He's written a couple of books himself. And and uh, and he said to me one day, uh, after I met him, I'd known him for about a year, he goes, hey, Schwantz, when are you going to write a book? I go, I've always wanted to write a book. I, I never had anything to say. I think now I'm ready. He said, I'd like to be your ghostwriter. So he and I contracted, and we started working on The Wedge. Well, about halfway through it, something like that, I called my mom and said, Mom, guess what? I'm writing a book. Now, you think she'd be like, you know, thumping herself on the chest. Yeah, like, wow, way to go, buddy. Man, my son's writing a book. But instead, it was like, Randy, you know, honey, uh, be careful. I don't want you to get hurt. You know, it's hard to get books published and publishers aren't doing too good. And, you know, it's like, it's like she's almost like talking me into a hole. Now, she didn't do it. On purpose, it's just who she was. And she obviously had been, as a kid growing up, a big influencer in my life. So I kind of said, you know, said, I didn't say it loud, but mom, shut the F up. Like, don't talk to me like that. You know, and so the reason I'm sharing this with you is chances are you've got two kinds of people or three kinds of people around you. You got people that are just totally neutral. They neither pump you up nor tear you down. You got people who pump you up, encourage you like Mark Pantek did to me to go do things beyond what I thought I was capable of and hold me accountable to being better than what I saw myself as. And then you got the ones that are dragging you down going, oh, come on, be careful. That's not for you. You know, that's for the that's reserved for smart, rich, you know, connected, politically savvy, yada, yada, yada people. And you're not one. So you got to be careful with all that. So back to the firewalk. After doing the firewalk, started the business. Uh, the wedge became apparent to me that somebody's got to lose for you to win. Wrote the book. Book came out. And like, man, it's so like hotcakes. And that was back in 97. And here we are right now in 2017, 20 years later. And the wedge is still selling really well, which is, God, man, it's, I mean, how lucky can you be, right? Because I, I, wrote, I wrote other books that haven't sold well. And so it, it's been it's been a great it's been great for us. But I mean, the reason I'm telling you all that stuff is that in all of us, there's a seed of greatness. There's a seed of extraordinary. There's a, there's a seed of something much, much more. And um, it's so important to challenge yourself or find a way to challenge yourself to go after that greatness. I mean, not only did I, I do the firewalk, I, I, I jumped out of a perfectly good airplane and, you know, did a free fall. And I didn't free fall because, I mean, you know, you did it because you wanted to have fun, but you also did it, or I did it, to challenge my courage. I wanted to build my courage meter, if you understand what I'm saying. I wanted to expand what I was comfortable doing. And um, that was... Uh, interesting event. I mean, there was four of us, two guys, two girls. And um, 
when you talk about training, I mean, once we signed up on a Wednesday night, uh, we go down to, you know, the, their, their retail shop and we go in there and, you know, we, we sign a waiver that says that they're not responsible for anything, even cleaning up the mess. If we die, um, except that they'll give us a parachute and they'll take us up in the sky and they'll teach you how to use it. That's what they were responsible for. Uh, but if something went wrong, it's not their problem. So we sign that document and then we, um, they, 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 they tell us what's going to happen. And then we step on top of a kind of a platform that's maybe 30 inches tall and jump off of that and kind of hit the ground and roll. And that was Wednesday night. And we watched a few videos or something. I don't recall exactly. And Saturday morning, we'll get to the airport and it's jump day. So we'd had 60 minutes worth of indoctrination. Now it's jump day. We're going to have about another 60 minutes and then we're going to be going up soon. So uh, no time to get nervous, time to figure it out. So we put on the jumpsuits, uh, put on the, the, the parachute, uh, get up on another platform 30 inches tall, jump off of that, hit and roll. And they taught us also, we practiced this, that once you're in the airplane, um, how you step out onto the wing, how you look to the right where your jump instructor is, get a check. You look to the left where your number two jump instructor is still in the airplane, get another check. Look back to the right to your number one jump instructor, get a check. And then you go up, down, and go. That's what they thought us to do. We rehearsed it maybe two or three times on the ground. We rehearsed jumping off that 30-inch platform two or three times on the ground. And now we're going to go skydive. Now, keep this in mind. Today, when you go skydiving, it's tandem. I mean, you're connected. You're connected, you know, with these straps to the to your jump instructor. Back then, you weren't connected to anything. I mean, they would hold on to this little strap on your pants, but that's about it. So, you know, it's time to go, and there was there was four of us, and they go, "Who wants to go first? And yeah, I mean, I always want to get it out of the way. So I raise my hand. So, All right, let's go. Hop in the airplane. So you can imagine the pilot. He's sitting on the left side of their plane. I'm sitting adjacent to him, facing the back. There's no seat there. They've taken it out. Sitting right in front of me is my number one jump instructor. Right next to him is the number two jump instructor. Right behind them was the photographer. So here we are, one, two, three, four, five guys in a small little single-engine airplane taking off, and then we start to circle as we're gaining altitude going up to 10,500 feet. And all the way up, my jump instructor's looking at me. Are you ready? You know, and I'm screaming, sky dive. You know, 30 minutes, 30 seconds later, are you ready? And I'm going, sky dive. You know, he's, he's just trying to get us all psyched up and freaked out and all that still. And then finally, we get up there about 10,500 feet. And then I hear the engine as, as the pilot kind of kind of pulls back, you know, the, 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 the RPM. And it's kind of like getting a little quiet. And then uh, everybody's looking around, okay, you guys ready? And, of course, they're all ready. I wouldn't. He looked at, you ready? Skydive. <laughs> and then and then he opens up the door. And, of course, the wing is kind of coming across the top of the airplane, if you know what I'm saying. I can kind of visualize it. As, as he opens up the door, the door just, boom, hits the wing. And I, like, freak out. And as I, I'm, I was leaning against the door, basically, because it's a little narrow airplane. And as I just look to my left, I'm peeking down. I can see the ground down there. And there's, there's, there's a little wheel well, and there's a strut going out to the wing. And then all of a sudden, the, the photographer crawls way out there on the wing and is hanging out there, and you know the wind's blowing. Because I think we probably slowed it down to maybe 70 miles an hour at that point. 
And then number one jump instructor goes out and he's out there with his tippy toe on uh, the wheel well and holding on to the, the wing strut. And then he tells me, okay, swing out here. So then I, I kind of swing out, you know, do a 180 degree turn as now I'm facing, you know, into the wind, if you will. I put one foot on that wheel well. I put two hands on that strut holding myself. The wind is flapping like crazy. He's holding on to like a, a hammer, a carpenter's hammer strap on the right side of my, my britches, my jumpsuit. The number two jump instructor is inside there playing. He's holding on to the left side of my pants. And now all of a sudden the training kicks in. Look to the right. Check. Look to the left. Check. I didn't look back to the right, which I was supposed to do. I just went up, down, go. And frankly, nobody was ready. So here we are coming out of the airplane. I just missed a big step, getting another check. And and, <laughs> and we come out. And instead of kind of coming out where your feet kind of fly up and you get level, basically I pushed off. So now we're going in these big old backward flips through the air with these guys hanging on to me. And they, they call it sensory overload because – you know, your sight, your hearing, your vision, your smell, your guts, every sense you have is totally overwhelmed. And as we're kind of flipping through the air, I can see the sky, then I can see the ground, and then I can see the sky, and I can see the ground, and it's not going good. And then my jump number one jump instructor puts a leg lock on me. He's holding on, and he takes his, his, his legs, wraps it around kind of the back part of my legs, and says, get your feet up, get your feet up, because that's what was kind of pushing us over. That was acting like a wing, because my feet weren't up. So then I finally got my feet up, and we kind of planed out, and then I flop up on his back, and then he pulls me back down again, then I flop on his back, and he pulls me back down again. Finally, finally, we're planed out, and we're free-falling. And then training kicks in again. You look to the right, there he is, check. You look to the left, and the guy wasn't there. And he's like over there about 30 or 40 feet away, flying like Superman. It was so cool because you know, he was just getting out of the way. His number one guy just did his job. And then all of a sudden, he kind of flies over to me like Superman, locks up, grabs my britches you know, as we continue to, to free fall. And then, and then the rest of the training kicks in, which is you do a practice pull. And, um, you know, where you practice, pull your chute and then we free fall a little bit. And we'd lost about 4,500 feet of altitude. So we're at 6,000 feet as all this is happening. And you're supposed to pull at 44,000 feet. So we get to free fall for about 2,000 feet. And then all of a sudden he taps on my altimeter. It's a 4,000 feet. I pull, I pull the, um, I pull the, the, the parachute cord and all of a sudden the parachute starts to come out. But my number one jump guy, he just dives straight down. He just like, shoo. And uh, number two is holding on to me as the chutes kind of come out. And you can kind of see it. And it, it, you, you talk about slow motion. That chute, it's probably happening faster than what it feels. But the chute is kind of coming out above your head. You're looking up. And you see that little packet that's holding the chute. And all those cords look all tangled up. And you're sitting there. You're, you're yanking on them, trying to get them to like open up. Then all of a sudden, whoop shoot opens up and that guy can't hold on to you anymore and he's gone and now you're up there like coasting baby and it's like beautiful and you got your little guides where you can turn that parachute one way or the other and you're kind of dancing around it's god it's a lot of fun and then what happened is number one jump instructor had gone down laid out his parachute on the ground and he's walking around that to guide you in so then he, you kind of come down he guides you in you turn into the wind you pull your little your deals the chute collapses and you kind of step on the ground and it was like awesome 
But that was the only part that was awesome. I mean, the first 4,000 feet was brutal. And uh, I thought I was going to die. And then, you know, I, I didn't die. In fact, I didn't even get hurt. But sure thought I was. But why don't I tell you a story? I did the firewalk to challenge my fears. Jumped out of airplane to challenge my fears. Um, I was fortunate enough to uh, get to do improv one time. I was at a meeting and a guy stands up and goes, yeah, I'm putting together a comedy team. Anybody want to join it? And uh, go, yeah, man, I, you know, I've always been sarcastic funny. I've never been funny funny. So I, let, let me go do it. So we put together an improv team and there's uh, 10 of us. And uh, a number of them have already done it before. I'd never done it. And so like I'm the freak in the crowd. And, and some of my improv teammates, I mean, they were brutal. They're, I mean, there's no mercy, right? Like, God, dude, you're not funny and you're not quick and you don't get it. And, and they're, they're condescending and mean and nasty, but hung in there. And, and we start working on our, our little bits. And what you find out is after a while, I mean, you can play. The, the more you relax, the, the sharper your mind was. And, um, and then we ended up doing 12 shows on Friday night and Saturday night at the Greenville Pocket Sandwich Theater. Um, small crowds, late at night. But we did it. And, you know, you walk out on stage and say, somebody give me an emotion. Anal retentive. Thank you. Somebody give me a character. Humpty Dumpty. Thank you. And you go backstage and then you come out and you do your skit in that anal retentive Humpty Dumpty or whatever, whatever emotion or whatever character you had to try to pull off your skit as well as a lot of other skits. And God, it was a lot of fun. And after doing that, it took away all stage fright. So that's what enabled me to ultimately become a public speaker because the very first time I ever tried to speak, I stuttered. I couldn't finish my joke. My knees were knocking. My hands were shaking. Uh, my hands were just covered with sweat. My brow was covered with sweat. Same guy, just different experience after having gone through the conditioning, for lack of a better term. Okay, so all this stuff, for what reason? It's just a way to say you can do it too, man. Um, if you got a half million dollar book, you can build a million dollar book. I know you can. Now, you probably need some training. You probably need to expand your belief system about what you're capable of. You got to change the way you provide service. By doing that, you'll start to believe that your buyers want to help you. You'll start to believe that you deserve it. Uh, you'll set goals that make you want it. Uh, you'll get organized in a way that you can handle it. You'll find a way to communicate your differences so buyers get it. And all those things start to aggregate up to you becoming a million dollar producer or more. And, um, that's really what this is all about. I mean, I didn't tell you these stories to glorify me. I just want you to know that. Um, I, I told you this, I mean, we're all human and almost all of us have some sort of fear or something holding us back. And if we go attack it, attack it, uh, go after it, uh, uh, sort through it, uh, separate the truth from the myth, build out a system and a process that many great things can happen for us. And that's what I want to encourage for you. So today's been all about agency growth machine. We're ultimately, you know, when we can get producers or you as a sales leader to expand, to expand your belief system, expand your potentiality, step into what your potential, then you'll grow your agency. You'll grow your producers. If you're a producer, listen to this, you can take yourself to the next level. I mean, we're all capable in some way, shape, form or fashion. We're all capable. And that's what this is about. So, 
um, many busy agency owners don't have the resources to develop their producers into uh, high growth machines. And that's why here at the Wedge Group, we developed a system, a platform called Iowa Agency Growth Machine to help you build producer confidence, build producer motivation, get them organized and give them a plan so they grow and so your agency grows. And it's called the Iowa Agency Growth System. And it's a kind of a, it's a 3D approach. It's training, technology, and coaching all integrated in sync so that you get a much better synergistic effect where the combined effect of these things working together is better than you going out and buying some bucket technology or hiring some sales coach that doesn't do insurance uh, or trainer or reading some crazy books because you think that's it. So if you're interested in, in putting some mojo behind growing your agency, man, we'd love to hear from you here at The Wedge Group, www.thewedge.net. This is Randy Schwantz signing off. Thank you.